TGIM Team RE, this is episode 307, first one of 2021. Don't assume that you will feel as bad as you think that you will without the alcohol, because it's very likely not the case. It's the, the deranged alcohol lobbyist in your brain deceiving you. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Chris. Chris took his last drink around six years ago. He is from New Jersey and he is 33 years old. And before I get started, I want to give a special shout out to all of the badass warriors that are participating in our Restore course that just started on January 1st. I'm rooting for all of you, and I'm grateful that you all decided to prioritize on yourselves. Alrighty, let's work on finding your better you. An article came out around a month ago on Elle magazine. It was titled, The Year of Drinking Dangerously. It was referring to 2020, of course. I was honestly surprised that a magazine that is mainly focused on fashion, beauty tips, and celebrity gossip was addressing this topic. And by surprised, I mean pleasantly surprised. It's about fucking time. Alcohol isn't just affecting alcoholics. Alcohol is affecting all of us. Alcohol is affecting the way we shape our society. It's affecting the way we parent, the way we work, the way we interact with others. The world needs to know this. It's time we start to state the facts and get serious instead of continuing to laugh at wine memes and pretending like alcohol is not a drug. I don't know about you all, but last year taught me that I can take on way more than I thought I could. It taught me that I have grit, that I can confront things that I'm scared of, and that I can speak up about things that matter to me. It taught me that I don't have to be a people pleaser. So just how the author of this article pushed the envelope and published this in a magazine where drinking is glamorized without fearing not being liked, I vow to do the same. I want this to be the year where Recovery Elevator changes even more lives. I want us to be a part of this movement of taking the blindfold off our society. Alcohol is shit. Paul Churchill said that once, and I think he even wrote a book about it. This is the year we say fuck you to booze. I'm going to have our show notes, Queen Katie, link the article that I'm mentioning to the show notes, but I want to read a few excerpts from it on here. And I think I said the word excerpt correctly. If not, lo siento. Alcohol is a quick decompression tool and it's self-medication for depression, anxiety, and overwork. Excessive drinking increases one's risk for anxiety, depression, suicide, seven different types of cancer, stroke, and heart disease. Further, using alcohol to cope may make you dependent. As soon as you start drinking to relieve the stress of your marriage or adjusting to motherhood, it becomes more addictive neurochemically. In the end, booze might sabotage the very thing we're chasing, relaxation. While alcohol calms us initially by activating GABA, which is a neurotransmitter that helps the body relax, dopamine and endorphins in the brain, as the blood alcohol levels start to decline, it triggers the body's stress response system, prompting an emotional hangover that can last to several hours, even days, and making us potentially more anxious than we were before the glass of wine. In addition, 
Excessive drinking over time can damage the body's natural production of GABA and dopamine, which may increase your baseline level of anxiety. It may also spur a general state of malaise and impact your ability to enjoy life. The feeling that you get from alcohol is artificial. It's chemical. So what is not happening is authentic conversation or real connection. True connection is being seen, known, and accepted for who we truly are without a crutch. As a society, we're fast to reach for quick fixes and often unwilling to do the hard work of meeting life and its discomforts head on. But it's time we face the truth. Wine culture is a lie and it's killing us and it's making us more miserable, more anxious, more depressed, more isolated. You don't need wine. You need connection, support, tools, laughter, and love. I was in Guadalajara spending the holidays with my family when I read this article. I read it, and although I knew most of what was said on it, it made me feel extremely raw, angry, and hopeless. It took me a few days to process and to realize that I was allowed to be upset, but I wasn't going to let myself feel useless. We are doing the work. If you're here, so are you. If you're here and if you're still lost, you will be found. Let's keep weaving this net. Let's keep having these conversations, challenging the narrative and helping others. There are so many of us already experiencing the benefits of sobriety. I'm so hopeful that as a society, the tide is turning. Nowadays, there is less and less stigma around recovery. The Sober Curious movement continues to grow. There are more non-alcoholic beverages coming out by the day and people are starting to question their relationship with alcohol. So let's keep going, team. All right, eso es todo. That's it for today. And before we hear from Chris, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe Ari. For years, I tried to control my drinking on my own, but I always felt alone and like I needed something else. When I discovered Cafe Ari, I realized there were so many people just like me looking for a better life. Cafe RE is a private, unsearchable Facebook group that provides 24-7 access to a community of people whose goal it is to live a life without alcohol. With supportive and educational webinars hosted throughout the week, there are plenty of opportunities to connect with others on the same path. Cafe RE is a place where we grow and learn together. And with Golden Rule number 22, we have a lot of fun while doing it. For just $19 a month, you'll have access to the community, all of our online webinars, the opportunity to attend in-person meetups, get discounts on sober travel trips, and get assigned an accountability partner. 15% of monthly membership even goes towards our service project, where we partner with nonprofits to help those affected by addiction. Head over to recoveryelevator.com and use the promotional code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. We hope to see you there. Hey, Chris, how's it going today? I'm great, Odette. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited that we reconnected. Listeners, Chris and I met at Beyond the Bottle in Dallas earlier this year, and we were just commenting on how that feels like a million years ago and a different planet because a lot has changed since then. (laughs) An alternate universe, for sure. And as I was telling you before we started, that was the last trip that I went on. And, you know, a lot has clearly gone on and it's been quite painful for a lot of people. But you know, luckily, I think a lot of the lessons that we learned or content we went over, experiences we shared are still very relevant, if not 
more now than ever, um, potentially more now than ever, because uh, so many more people seem to have slid into the uh, addicted nature of uh, addicting nature of alcohol. Yeah, I mean, we're recording this during September, which is National Recovery Month. And I've seen a lot of people bring more and more awareness to addiction in the last couple of weeks. And I'm really excited because I know a lot of people are struggling. A lot more people than were already struggling are now struggling due to the pandemic. So I'm really glad we're having this conversation. And I do feel like we have to continue to bring awareness to this because there's going to be a lot of work to do once this all is done, whenever that happens. <laughs> oh, for sure. No doubt about it. I've seen more people struggling in the last couple months than I have since I started doing alcohol recovery coaching, since I started my website and my podcast um, years ago. Um, and it's really scary to see, but on the bright side, and I'm a perpetual incurable optimist, mm -hmm. We do have this digital recovery revolution, as some people have called it, which just consists of all of these cool podcasts, this probably being the biggest one, and uh, websites and inspiring people on social media, which, by the way, I'm not I'm not good at social media, but I'm <laughs> it's on my bucket list. And, you know, when I quit drinking about six years ago there, if there was that, I think a few people were online. Maybe this podcast was around. I'm not sure if it was. But there wasn't much. I would Google the things that I was struggling with, you know, waking up in the morning, not feeling good. That's a bad Google keyword phrase, by the way. You won't you'll get all sorts of stuff but like, why do I feel horrible when I quit drinking? You know, and I would get these boring WebMD articles and nothing seemed to be relevant to my experience directly. Everything was a bit sanitized and impersonal, as if it was written by a member of a doctor's staff who just didn't care and was about to write on, you know, move on to the next article about something interesting like diabetes or whatever. And uh, I just couldn't find many people to relate. And so, you know, we've always had great support groups in the form of AA, smart recovery, et cetera. But now everyone's on their phones, everyone's on their devices. And uh, I think it's good that they're, that at least now, uh, some people can find solace in the fact that there are other people going through very, very similar experiences as them who they wouldn't have been able to connect with or have the opportunity to relate to before. I feel like as humans, we connect to stories and we are storytellers by nature. So when we look at a generic article, it's very hard to find yourself there or to find the similarities. So now, of course, this movement is really blown up and people are telling their stories, stepping into their truth. And I think it's it's not only a collective like project that a lot of us are on, but there's also a lot more tools and a lot more openness. So I'm really happy that that we're both a part of that movement. And I'm excited to hear more about your story, Chris. Tell me when your last drink was. So I know you said around six years ago, but do you have a date? What's your sober date? My life and my experience was so blurry back then. I do not have a sober date. I, I believe it was in late summer or early fall of 2014. And yeah, I think sometime in the summer, actually, because I had just taken a trip to Cabo with a girlfriend of mine, and we had been dating for about three and a half years. And uh, all hell broke loose after that trip. <laughs> and it took a few weeks for me to really hit rock bottom. But basically, in a nutshell, and without answering your next questions uh, before they come, I couldn't get up to go to work for like three days in a row. 
my BlackBerry, I worked in finance, my BlackBerry was blowing up and boss was like, where the hell are you? And finally, I just said, you know what, this is it. I can't do it anymore. Good old BlackBerry. I remember those days. <laughs> yeah, I, I started chuckling at myself when I said that. But yeah, I did. I guess I had a BlackBerry. I think we all had. And can you give listeners a little background, Chris? Can you let us know where you're from? What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? Do you have a family? And what do you like to do for fun? Sure. So I'm originally from northern New Jersey. I currently live in Savannah, Georgia. And this is the third place I've lived permanently, third or fourth. And uh, I used to work in finance in New York City. That was kind of where I reached the peak of my drinking. And after working in finance, I became a personal trainer. At the same time that I made that transition, I also quit drinking. So as, as I said, that was about six years ago. And I started a, a humble little blog called Fit Recovery. It's, it's still to this day, fit-recovery.com. And I just started writing the articles that I wished I could have read when I was trying to figure out what was going on in my brain, what was going on with my biochemistry. I wouldn't have put it in those terms, but I just wanted something that was simultaneously relatable and informative for lay people like me, because I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist, I, I don't have any degrees in, in, in biochemistry, although looking back, I kind of wish I did. And uh, so I since became a, since starting that website, I've since become an alcohol recovery coach, and uh, I spend most of my time with my private clients and with the members in my online course, Total Alcohol Recovery 2.0. And I also have a podcast with a great guy named Matt Finch, whose experience is, well, I was going to say similar to mine. It's not, except that he also is very addicted to not just alcohol, but opiates and a whole bunch of other things. And that's called the Elevation Recovery Podcast. So I'm lucky that I'm able to do what I love. It took several years of doing personal training and working on this at night before I could finally make connecting with other people who were in my former shoes my profession. But I'm happy to say that is currently what I do. Uh, I started Fit Recovery because my first epiphany, probably not a revolutionary one, a lot of people probably agree, but I realized that I, I felt less likely to relapse after a good workout. And I didn't hear a lot of people talking about the relevance of exercise for alcohol recovery. And that was back then. I'm sure now there are plenty of people saying that. So I love to work out. Anything outside of nature is awesome. Um, I train mixed martial arts with some, uh, I'm not trying to compete, but uh, I train with a retired UFC fighter. That was a, a long dream of mine. I'd been doing martial arts my whole life. And I used to sit on bar stools and fantasize about how good I'd be when I would watch UFC fights. And <laughs> of course, I had this, uh, I had this um, idea that I would be able to step in the ring and probably hold my own. And I would have gotten my ass beat for sure back then. And so, you know, I like to be very physically active. Um, and I guess I should also say I have two dogs that are currently at my feet. Thank God. I'm, ho I'm hoping they don't get up and start wrestling over a bone or something, but mm -hmm. I rescued them since the pandemic. I, that was another thing. When I drank, uh, I used to kind of fantasize about all these things that I wanted and I wanted dogs. So I'm currently doing the things kind of step by step that I had fantasized about doing when I was stuck in the alcoholic cycle. Although I didn't realize that helping people out of that alcoholic cycle would be one of those things, but I did want to start controlling my own schedule and living life to the fullest. And uh, so that's kind of the journey I'm on. I love it. I think it's inspiring. I think that one of the messages that I like sharing, like you, I'm a 
total optimist and just believing in us believing that everything that we want can be possible and can be achieved and we may not know how we're going to get there but if we work on ourselves and stay the course things just start falling into place and I have big like I have a strong belief towards that and I have this reassurance that that it can happen and it's great seeing you as evidence of that so thanks for sharing I'll make sure that Kate links everything that you mentioned onto the show notes in case people want to visit your website or listen to the show. Thanks for sharing that. And I'm really glad that you brought up exercise because when I was interviewed for this show a while ago, I mentioned how exercise was probably one of my most important tools on this journey. Uh, I struggle with depression as well, and it just completely changes the way that I feel, the way that I think throughout the rest of the day. So I like knowing that that's something that you're going to chat about here later on. But I do think it's a fantastic tool. So thanks for bringing that up. And can you give listeners some background on your history, Chris? Can you let us know a little bit more about your story? When did you start drinking? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving your goals? And just walk me through a little bit of sure. your past. Yeah. So I started drinking, I guess you could say, in high school, although I wasn't a big partier. I was always a type A, very committed to what I was doing kind of person. And in high school, I was very much into grades and I was a competitive swimmer. So I was studying and swimming pretty much all the time. And, you know, when I was 17, some of my friends started going out to parties, 16 or 17, and I'd accompany them occasionally. And it quickly became evident that I could just magically outdrink all of them. And uh, I remember vividly one night when I had two friends over and I had managed to procure a fake ID and I had walked into a liquor store and bought a bottle of 99 bananas, which is really repulsive to think about in, uh, in retrospect, but I was super proud of it. And I ended up drinking basically the entire bottle. And my two friends who were from any outsider's perspective would have been bigger partiers than me because they just did more bad stuff, I guess. They were passed out within a shot. And I drank the rest of the bottle and I was woken up in the middle of the night by myself vomiting. I, I couldn't believe what was going on. And I looked, my pillow was totally covered in vomit. It smelled like 99 bananas and just really gross. I kind of forgot about that incident. And I just moved on slowly and imperceptibly to develop a very unhealthy relationship with alcohol quite quickly. There was directly in opposition to everything that I stood for as far as my character and my life. So it was like I had this dual life. It was kind of a secret dual life. Now in college, it, it's all of a sudden very acceptable to, be, to go out and drink. And I guess I thought of myself as lucky at the time, but really I was unlucky that my grades didn't seem to be affected. I could put down enormous quantities of alcohol. I think I had withdrawals by the time I turned 20, but I didn't know what they are, what they were. I thought they were just panic attacks and I figured, oh, maybe there's something wrong with my brain <laughs> innately because I'd, I'd felt nervous. I'd always had a history of low blood sugar episodes. My parents had actually taken me to the doctor as a, as a kid, as a child, probably around the age of five, saying that if we don't feed him, he freaks out, what's going on? And they said, well, just feed, feed him, it's probably low blood sugar. Some people have this issue more than others. And I should also say here that I was adopted and I have a slight hearing impairment, which doctors speculated and audiologists speculated would could be due to prenatal alcohol exposure. 
Uh, and unfortunately, when they discovered that when I was a kid, pretty young, they figured it could it could be cigarettes or alcohol. They didn't know. So I never ascribed any significance to that. But that should have been a red flag. And, you know, my parents who raised me were great. I had a wonderful childhood and there were there were no real red flags. Luckily, no horrible trauma from my childhood, no uh, PTSD, just little flashes of anxiety here and there, low blood sugar episodes. And then so by the time I'm in college, I'm starting to have withdrawal when I don't drink. And I played tug of war with alcohol addiction until I was uh, 26, you know, 26, 27, around there. And that's when I really realized I had a problem. And I'd had little moments where I would be honest with myself, maybe in my early to mid 20s. But, you know, I went after college to work on Wall Street. I moved right into Manhattan. The drinking culture doesn't get any better there than college. I had this vision of, you know, all of a sudden there, I would be healthy and surrounded by tall buildings and, you know, everyone was going to be happy and who would need alcohol because everything was going to be great. But it turned out that I needed alcohol just as much then, if not more than when I was in college partying. And instead of going and drinking a keg, I'd be drinking, you know, four or five martinis and just spending more money. So I, I decided to, to switch jobs a couple times switch locations, see if that would help. I know that's a very common theme. Yeah. And, uh, I, it didn't, it didn't help. Initially it helped for a little bit, but then I would slide back into my old ways. You know, so one of the big epiphanies for me, as I began to recover from this, and I had to go to detox by the time I quit because I was drinking up to a handle of vodka a day. And I progressed through all of the phases of alcohol addiction. I had been, I'd been the party boy in college. I had I had become a self-styled wine connoisseur for a while when I was in New York. I even had periods of up to a month where I would drink maybe two to four glasses of wine a night, and that was it. But my body was itching for more. It was the ultimate exercise in, in discipline and will, willpower. And then, of course, what would happen would be someone would invite me to a party, and I'd end up drinking 10 times that, or maybe five, but still a lot more than that. And you know, suddenly I'm back at square one and you know, not caring anymore, or at least I thought. So when I finally went to detox and I'd spent some time in inpatient rehab, I was able to break the cycle. You know, I was given benzodiazepines to keep me from having seizures, which I'm pretty sure I'd had on my own in my apartments during some previous attempts to go cold turkey. And I started really investigating what was going on. And I was lucky to stumble across some books and some studies. And, you know, while I maintain that everyone's experience with alcohol addiction is different, that, you know, there are as many probably types uh, and variations of alcohol dependence as there are human nature and, uh, and even physiological nature. But for me, what I realized was that I had serious nutrient deficiencies. I was biochemically unbalanced for a long time. I should have known that um, well, there's, there'd be almost no way for me to know this, but having hypoglycemia is a big red flag for alcohol consumption because alcohol can quickly become the preferred way to, to raise your blood sugar. And it does that in a, in a vicious way, in such a way that several hours later after drinking, your blood sugar is way down. And at the same time, you're creating deficiencies in GABA, the primary calming neurotransmitter in the brain, endorphins, the pleasure chemicals, dopamine, the seeking and reward chemical, serotonin, the confidence and relaxation chemical. All of these things were gradually going down for all of the years that I drank. And it didn't help that I was getting next to no sleep 
which was a habit that I developed in high school to deal with my sometimes twice a day swim practices plus school routine. And then in college, I was just you know used to not getting as much sleep as I needed. And then uh, on, on Wall Street, I was told to work till three in the morning to finish financial models very often. And then I'd have to be back uh, just basically several hours later to do it all over again. So the lack of sleep and the poor, I didn't really have poor nutrition. That was the funny thing. I had, I would eat mostly what we would call clean foods, but it didn't matter because I was drinking too much and I had a lot of, uh, I guess you could say prerequisites biochemically for developing alcohol addiction. I didn't get enough sleep. The basics of my lifestyle were off and I didn't even know it. And it was driving me towards hell. And I was really borderline suicidal by the time I quit. Wow. And then you mentioned how high functioning you were, not only throughout college, but also once you moved to Manhattan and you were just basically in this rat race where everyone's just working and drinking and then you do it all over again, this vicious cycle. But you you mentioned the term dual life, which I, I wrote down here on my notebook. And you had these how many how many times before you quit drinking, did you have these conversations or these thoughts with yourself? Because I'm sure people around you weren't really aware of your struggle because you were so high functioning. But how often did you find that you were questioning your drinking or were you able to directly link it to alcohol? Like how aware were were you of alcohol as the problem? Were you in denial? Were you accepting of it? Talk to me a little bit more of like your inner mental state at that point, this tug of war that you mentioned. Yeah, that's a great question. I was in deep denial for years, but with outbursts of of honesty. Mm-hmm. And I remember after the first time I moved away from New York, I decided to um, briefly become a business manager for a small tech company in Delaware, of all places. And, uh, you know, as usual, I had met the guy that, who owned it at some cocktail party and the alcohol had fueled my loquaciousness, I suppose. I impressed him somehow in spite of my bloodshot eyes. And he hired me on the spot. I moved from New York and I get there several weeks into the job. I'm not happy at all. I realized this was not the right choice for various reasons. And uh, not least among them, my inability to stop drinking, which I thought was would be a given if I just left New York, which I blamed for my addiction at that point. And... I remember standing outside of a liquor store on a Sunday morning or Saturday morning, waiting for it to open. And I had a vitamin water bottle that was empty, but I'd poured vodka into it. And (laughs) I had drank about half of the vitamin water and I'd driven there. It was probably a mile away. I drank about half of the vitamin water bottle. And I remember thinking, this isn't normal, is it? it? That's literally the kind of situation it took for me to realize that I wasn't normal. I used to think I would rationalize it, that I was special. And I would have these really insane inner bouts of, of narcissism in which I would, I would say to myself, well, I'm so, I'm so special that I just can't deal with boring people in offices unless I'm drunk. That's just, that just, that's just my thing. And then I would think, you know, there are guys like that in the past, you know, Hemingway and, and uh, you know, James Bond, who's not even real, yeah. uh, uh, you know, Don Draper. And so I had these, this mix of, apocryphal stories and and fictional characters that would inspire me to keep trying to be special. And really, that was a that was the main symptom of my denial. But standing in front of that liquor store with the vodka and the vitamin water, I that was the first time I think I felt ashamed of myself. And I, I remember thinking, 
I'm going to end up in rehab. And I'm not sure that was the verbatim thought. And certainly I don't say that now to keep anyone from going to rehab. That's probably what I needed even at that time. But the amazing thing and what I want to share is that it took me two years after that experience, two, two or three years to quit and to actually go get help and to admit to my family and my friends what was going on. And it was torturous. I had bright moments. I had some career successes. I had I had some relationships that were pretty good, you know, friendships and and otherwise. But I always felt like I was teetering on the edge of borderline breakdowns. And, you know, luckily, I don't have uh, otherwise a history of depression or bipolar. But by the time I quit, I may as well have. Um, I, I don't think since I quit six years ago, I don't think I've had a single like vicious argument with with any any of my close friends, only constructive ones. But before I quit drinking, it was a different story. And so sometimes after I would have a weird outburst, I would start asking myself, you know, why did that happen? And then I would say, well, it's the alcohol. And then the other side of my brain would say, no, it's the lack of alcohol. If you'd had a drink and just calmed down and taken the edge off, you wouldn't have lost your temper. See, I would tend, when I was drinking, I was happy and I was sociable and I was articulate and I had energy. Alcohol gave me tons of energy to do things. Then when it wore off, I was irritable. I was lethargic. I was an asshole, really. And so it was difficult for me because alcohol was a performance enhancing drug. At least I thought it was. And then, of course, I got to the point when I quit, I couldn't go to work in the morning because alcohol had stopped temporarily curing the effects that alcohol had brought on in the first place. So I got to the point where more alcohol did not mean less withdrawal. More alcohol just meant me falling into into hell even further. Yeah, I mean, it. we've said we've said it here over and over again, it, it worked until it didn't. And I really appreciate you sharing that story with the vitamin water, because another theme that we've been keeping close in the last couple of episodes has been where our journeys begin versus when did we quit drinking? A lot of the times those dates aren't the same date or around the same time. I think your journey began way before um, you stopped drinking. It's kind of what you're sharing, those bouts of awareness and those insights. And then we kind of do this thing, like you said, where your brain just justifies the addiction and almost makes you a chameleon to where like, okay, maybe you didn't find yourself outside of a liquor store before it opened a lot after that, you would just be drinking martinis, you would make it seem back to what is normal and what is socially accepted. And then it's just until until it doesn't work. And until you decided that it was time to stop drinking. So tell me a little bit more about those first couple months. I know that you had withdrawals and that you went to rehab. I, I think you mentioned inpatient treatment, but how was the beginning of your journey compared to afterwards where you've found a lot about yourself? You've really treated this as an experiment, in my opinion, where you're getting to know yourself, getting to know your body. But just tell me about your your journey once you stop drinking. Sure. So the tug of war in my mind continued for some time after I quit. And what basically happened was I you know, after that third day of not going to work, realizing I'm probably going to get fired, I just called my parents. I called all of my close friends. I said, look, I'm, I need to go away for a while. I don't know what the hell is going on with me, but I definitely have a problem with alcohol. I even talked to my boss, who was I finally talked, got, got back in touch with him. He was very supportive. And 
there was a huge weight off weight off of my chest. It was kind of like this has been coming for years and I finally done something. So I took some I won't say pleasure in that because I was incapable of feeling pleasure without alcohol. But I did feel some inner peace after just getting that momentous thing out of the way. And, you know, then a whole nother, you know, I mentioned that the, the pre-pandemic feels like an alternate universe. This whole thing feels like a, a, a blurry movie from 100 years ago in my own mind, which is one reason I can't be more specific about dates. But I recall waking up in the detox center and being in a, a gown and uh, in a little room. And I legitimately didn't know where I was for probably 20 minutes. And I didn't feel like doing anything. I was probably loopy because of the Ativan that they gave me to keep me from having a seizure and prevent severe withdrawal. But I was there for a little while. And I remember being struck by how kind a lot of the other people in there were. And also being surprised at myself for actually having done it. And the tug of war that continued was kind of like, are you sure you wanted to do this? Because now it kind of seems like the fun in your life is over. <laughs> and so there was a little bit of trepidation about that because there was immense peace that now I'd, I'd done a thing that I needed to do. But now was I stuck in purgatory? And would it just be me trying to be a saint for the rest of my life? and not having any real joy, but just putting on a smiley face. So that was kind of what bothered me then. But I didn't let myself think about it too much because I had a sort of certainty that I would just figure it out. And I, I had faith, really. It was a leap of faith that I would figure out you know, what, what needed to be done, and I would take everything step by step. So I was in inpatient rehab for a while after that, and uh, you know, at least several weeks. And you know, that was fine. There were some odd experiences there. I had some unsavory <laughs> individuals there. The only other person who wanted to go to the gym was a guy who was basically a, a skinhead. He had a swastika tat tattooed on his leg. Oh, God. And I didn't particularly want him spotting for me at the gym. Um, so there were weird things. You know, I, for the first time, I was able to think clearly. And, uh, you know, I kind of I, I started to learn some things that would be valuable later. First and foremost, meditation. There was a very kind, gentle, older guy who I think had been a priest before his sober journey had started. And he would lead these morning meditations every morning. And I would start getting a kind of buzz from those morning meditations, obviously not comparable to alcohol. But I started realizing, well, if I can kind of get a buzz from this meditation, and if my workouts are slowly feeling much better than they ever did before I quit drinking, Maybe it is possible to feel the way that I wanted to feel while drinking without drinking. And that would be an out. That would be an acceptable third way in between the go back to alcohol, wreck your life, but have a lot of fun, or at least think you are, and live in a purgatory where I'm slapping a smile on my face, even though I don't feel it. And I'm just trying to be a saint while you know everyone around me is doing what they always do. And I'm living in a state of deprivation. So I really committed, I committed myself to well, trying to be the best person I could and and in whatever way that that led me. And really, it led me towards personal training and the amount of fulfillment I got from becoming a personal trainer and helping people one on one versus basically counting beans at a large financial corporation was tremendous. And so I was able to get a lot of satisfaction out of that. And then after that, you know, I just kind of continued 
going day by day. And it's extremely surreal that I was able to get into alcohol recovery coaching. Uh, but but that's kind of what happened. I, I could not have imagined that I would feel as good on a daily basis without alcohol as I presently do. And it's really to the point that it feels silly now in retrospect that I ever thought that alcohol was this grand elixir of life. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that you also didn't want to live life from the standpoint of deprivation and just kind of like, well, I did the thing I had to do. I went to treatment and I am, I don't know, fake it till you make it kind of thing in a, in a weird way. I, I think that a lot of the times that is one of the biggest myths of this journey is that it's going to be white knuckling for the rest of your life and FOMO and not being able to have fun or enjoy the moment. And I think that as each of us finds fulfillment in whatever it is that we find it in, we realize that what's the new elixir is actually sobriety versus versus alcohol. And it's really neat to see that you found that. And I think service is also a big part of your story because you never imagined that coaching people who also struggled with alcohol was going to be something you ended up doing. And somehow it's what you do full time now. For sure. Yeah. And the, the terminology I usually use, it mirrors what you just said, but I say the fusion of self-improvement and fulfillment, and I define fulfillment as the, the joy you get from helping others, is really what lifted me out. And the self-improvement is, you could see it as somewhat ego-driven, but it's harnessing your ego towards things that are good for you and therefore good for everyone else because it's helping you become the best person you can be. So for me, that was exercise. It, it was excuse me, supplementation, which really helped me to start seeing the world in full color again. That's the, the best uh, way I can put the difference between pre-supplementation and post-supplementation. And I'm talking about things like amino acids, vitamins, minerals, nothing too crazy, some herbs, but just getting yourself to a point where you can sleep soundly, where you can keep anxiety at bay, where you have tools that help keep your blood sugar in check if that's a problem for you, it can. It, it kept me from having those breakdown episodes where I might be mean to someone and then feel really bad. I, I can't imagine how many crises I averted by stabilizing myself and giving myself me time, allowing myself to meditate, allowing myself to go exercise, and you know even pampering myself sometimes, taking an Epsom salt bath, lighting a candle. Some of my friends would make fun of me, but I didn't care because I was like, these are the things that I do now. I used to drink, and now I have these things that I need to do for myself. And they allow me to be stable and happy so that I can then turn around and help other people, whether that's in the gym or whatever I decided to do, and really start being the kind of person that wants to hold doors for people, that wants to look people in the eye and say hi and see how they're actually doing. I was so self-centered in a, I would say, biochemically, psychologically, and spiritually self-centered back when I drank. But I don't think it's because the ego is evil. I think it's because... My ego was just looking at a reflection of itself, and it was the it was the tug of war constantly going on. I didn't have time or energy or or, or the spirit really to help anyone else. Yeah, I want to double click on what you said about just balancing yourself out because we're experts at lashing out when I mean there's there's a reason why people know that they act differently when they're sleep deprived or know that they act differently when they're now this this term hangry and like this is all coming from a place of not being in balance. So in really simple terms, like what are the things that can help you achieve this balanced state? I know a lot of people in our community and a lot of listeners even ask about sugar and little things that 
ultimately make you still feel out of balance even when you quit drinking. So what are like simple tips that you know help you restore that balance? Well, first I'll say that I think the two main contributing factors that contribute to feeling unbalanced after you quit drinking for anywhere from months to years to permanently, you know, it's sometimes called post-acute withdrawal, but some people don't ever recover from it because they continue to make their baseline this state of unbalance. But the two factors that are crucial to address are hypoglycemia, which is low blood sugar, which has been found to be present in 90 plus percent. Um, I've heard some, I've seen some studies where it's 99% of people in rehab programs who have issues with hypoglycemia. And they always tend to have their panic attacks or their depressive, depressive episodes during those periods. Um, and in addition to hypoglycemia, deficiencies in neurotransmitter levels. That one's a bit more complicated. But to address, I guess the simplest tip would be to just start taking a solid multivitamin and to look into amino acid therapy for the uh, um, for the um, neurotransmitter deficiencies. And you can kind of kill a few birds with one stone with one of the most benign supplements that I know of. It's called L-glutamine. And L-glutamine is used for, uh, for a, a lot of people who work out. It's good for repairing muscle. It's good for gut health. But it's also uh, unique in that while it's the most abundant amino acid in our bloodstream, it's also turned into glucose in the brain with, without causing an insulin spike that would then cause a hypoglycemic episode. All of that is to say L-glutamine can help a lot of people. And of course, I'm not a doctor. I'm not prescribing this to anyone. It's just a suggestion based on my experience and a lot of people I've worked with can help a lot of people with uh, alcohol cravings, with sugar cravings, with anxiety and with sleep. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And there's, there are a lot of free articles on my website, um, fit-recovery.com, if this is a subject that interests people, because that's one of about 15 to 25 compounds that can be relevant and really helpful and potentially life-altering for a lot of people. Um, but I would say, as far as starting to stabilize yourself in the beginning, covering the basics is really important. And by the basics, I just mean exercise. I like to say, get a sweat a day. That's going to help uh, release endorphins. It's going to help rewire your dopamine system. It's going to help with all sorts of things, detoxify your body, make sure you're hydrated, try to minimize the amount of sugar that you consume. And taking L-glutamine is one way to do that. I actually was drinking two liters of soda, regular soda, every day for the first week that I was off of alcohol. And um, I'd never had a sweet tooth before. It was the weirdest thing. Mm. I used to look down on people who ordered dessert, you know, while I was sipping my cognac or whatever. And uh, it turns out that the brain, the alcoholic brain prefers alcohol, but if it can't get it, then sugar is the next best thing because it's absorbed quickly and also highly, addict highly addictive, can uh, massively rewire your dopamine system in a way that makes you dependent on sugar. But L-glutamine can help you not become dependent on sugar, can help you go longer in between meals if you need to. Um, but a lot of people benefit from eating many small meals throughout the day just to keep their blood sugar stable and also getting a lot of fresh air and sunshine. Um, I mean, those are the basics. Fresh air, sunshine, exercise, or if not exercise, a sweat a day, a sauna or a hot bath is great. And starting to look into what your nutritional needs are. And as I say, there are a lot of articles on my website 
Um, and I, I should also say I've started working myself with a functional medicine doctor recently because I'm pretty fine tuned at this point, but I want to be as fine tuned as I possibly can. And so we're really focusing on gut health at this point. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to get too far into the weeds there, but I hope that was sufficient. Yeah, I I think that, like I mentioned the world, the word experiment earlier, and I feel like in quitting drinking comes a lot of getting to know ourselves in terms of our thoughts, but something that I think for a lot of people isn't a priority at first, you know, they just want to quit, but it's important to understand the body's role in our addiction and how we can really optimize this tool that is our body and that we all have and that we all live with. And you did forget my most favorite and one of the basic tools and needs, which is sleep. (laughs) Which I know oh, is, um, right. I know it's okay. hard. It's yeah. I know it's hard for a lot of people at first. I know sleep patterns are messed up and I don't know the intricacies of what happens, but I know that for a lot of people, their sleep is has been disrupted for so long that it's almost like a new learning curve. But I, I do like saying that this journey also allows you to actually rest properly, not just pass out drunk and then wake up the next day, but actually learn how to sleep and rest again. And that is crucial for our bodies to recover. It absolutely is. And my favorite book that I've read in the last year is uh, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, who's a um, very well-known sleep researcher. And sleep is one of those things that I had always had trouble with. I'd had trouble with it in, as a kid in high school. And it's, it's also one of the last things that I've fully optimized. I still have phases where I'm working too hard on something or I'm too excited and I just don't want to go to bed. I still get the same second winds sometimes that I used to get. And I used to stay up drinking with those second winds. And I would be like, well, I'm going to get, I'm only going to get four hours of sleep. So whatever, I may as well keep drinking. I'll get two. What's the difference? I'll feel like, like crap regardless. And now I, I don't, that never happens, but sometimes it's six instead of eight. And I get mad at myself still. I have a whoop strap. Um, I know a lot of people have Apple watches, but I found it really helpful to track my sleep and try to figure out what's going on. Because a lot of times, you know, I, I would assume, well, I was in bed for eight hours, so I probably got eight hours of sleep. That might not be the case. And so when I look at my whoop strap and it says, yeah, you were in bed for eight hours, but you slept for five hours and 45 minutes, I know that I need to focus more on routines to relax me. And maybe I could benefit from taking a, an ashwagandha or some passion flower or having chamomile tea. That was actually, I should have mentioned that. I had I had chamomile tea every night for like a year and a half after I quit drinking to the point where I actually would, and I would drink it out of wine glasses. I would drink it, and I'm not recommending this to anyone, but I, that became my new thing. I would have to have chamomile tea at night. It's a very benign substance. I've never heard of anyone entering rehab for chamomile tea addiction. <laughs> Uh, I have sleepy. Well, my sleepy tea has chamomile and it's every night. I also add a little bit of dark chocolate, but I love it so much. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So now it's it's chamomile. Um, I love the the celestial seasonings. Is that the name of it? The sleepy time. And um, I also have some reishi mushroom hot chocolate with no sugar in there. I have all of these things. I actually had both of those things last night and one after the other. And uh, I think I had, I had I had a blend of mint tea, chamomile tea, and then my my reishi mushroom with uh, raw cacao. You'd think that would keep me up, but for some reason the maybe there's not enough caffeine in that chocolate. It just makes me blissed out. And a little um, chewable L-theanine. I think the brand is Sun Theanine. 
And then I just, I had the best sleep. So yes, that's something that it took me longer to optimize that. And when I left uh, the rehab program, <clears throat> they had given me a prescription of trazodone for sleep, but I actually found that I felt so loopy in the morning after taking that, that I just needed to find something else. And so I switched to those more natural things. And it was really Epsom salt baths and chamomile tea. Sometimes I would put six chamomile tea bags in a mug just to get to sleep and it would work wonders. It truly is the best. I've One of my first jobs ever was at a tea shop in Guadalajara in my hometown. And I learned a lot about tea and herbal properties of flowers that are used for tea. And now I literally have sleepy tea almost every night. And it's a great way to naturally unwind because it's true. A lot of the times, um, some of these remedies for sleep then disable us in waking up clear-minded, which is one of the main goals of not drinking in the first place. So it's yeah. it's important to find something that helps, but also doesn't disrupt the next day. Absolutely. And that's even the case with some natural remedies. I'm actually not personally a huge fan of valerian uh, because I found that that makes me, you know, that's an herb that a lot of people use for anxiety and sleep. I find that it makes me loopy in the morning. Um, and too much passion flower makes me makes it hard for me to get out of bed. Um, CBD is something that I guess is controversial for some people, but I've found it to be very helpful for occasional sleep. But once you realize there's this vast universe of natural, relatively benign things and some some completely benign things that can help you, you know, get things done and, and feel the way you wanted to and not use alcohol for it. You can use that as a psychological distraction as much as it is biochemical repair. So, you know, it's kind of funny. I used to have cabinets filled with liquor bottles. Now I have cabinets filled with various teas and herbal remedies and all this stuff. And, you know, I've, I have no inclination to go back to alcohol at this point. It's about as appealing as drinking gasoline out of the pump or something. But I, I, I know that when I was in early recovery, that wasn't the case. And it was useful for me to have like seven boxes of tea, <laughs> different kinds in my cabinet. And I would look at it and be like, well, I, I can't go drink. I've got to try this tea. I haven't had it yet. And we'll see what happens. It's almost like you have this new natural apothecary and instead of instead of a bar cart or a liquor cabinet or something. So exactly. I, yeah, I love it. And I love what you said about sometimes also the psychological effects of it, because I do strongly believe that habits, at least at the beginning, need to be replaced. So maybe if that's what you used to do is you used to have a drink that you used to consider a treat, you do need to find that replacement. It does matter, especially at the beginning. So I really do want to encourage listeners to think about the habits or the or the hours where they had these routines and these special moments or habits and really find a replacement because there are a ton of replacement options options out there. You just have to find what you not only what works for you, but what you also enjoy, because I'm also a big proponent of this journey having to be enjoyable and fun. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. All right. We've reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? I'll do my best. Okay, perfect. What would you say to your younger self? Uh, don't drink alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> What has recovery made possible for you outside of working in the field and just healing your body, your mind and your soul? What else has this journey made possible for you? It's made deeper relationships possible for me. The ability to be present with people in a way that I didn't realize was possible before I quit. 
What's your favorite ice cream flavor? That's if you eat ice cream. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a saint. And I recently have developed a, a liking for the, um, uh, what is it? The Talente Mediterranean Mint, which, which is at Whole Foods. Yes, they're, it's gelato, isn't it? Yes, it is. I hope that counts. Totally counts. It's delicious. I really like it as well. What book are you reading right now, Chris? Ah, uh, what am I reading? I just read a book on dog training because I, I it's called um, uh, The Dog Guardian. So anyone with a dog, that should be helpful. But I'm currently reading a book called uh, Breath. I can't recall the, uh, no, James Nestor is the author. And it's really good. It's about how breathing can help with a lot of things that we just talked about. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? This sounds cliche, but I would say so try to solidify your support system. Think about who you can um, confide in as you go on this, uh, this adventure. I like to frame it as an adventure, not some bleak obligation. And um, don't assume that you will feel as bad as you think that you will without the alcohol, because it's very likely not the case. It's the the deranged alcohol lobbyist in your brain deceiving you. And before we depart, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if line. <laughs> you may have to say adios to booze if you find yourself outside a liquor store before it opens with a empty bottle of vitamin water refilled with vodka. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. I really enjoyed our chat and I can't wait to share this with everyone. Thanks so much, Odette. I had a great time. Very well, Timari. That's a wrap. And before I say adios, I want to challenge you to take a few moments to piggyback off last week's homework. I ask you all to reflect on who you are trying to become. Did you reflect on this as we transitioned into the new year? I pray we are all brave enough to speak our truth this year, whatever that may be. Please don't shy away from what you know in your heart you are being called to do. We have your back each and every one of you. Please remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, let's continue to be trailblazers. Love you guys. Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the fight a drinking problem or an addiction because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart and follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you. People often ask me, what's the one thing I can do? response is always the same. Burn the ships. It's these repetitive thoughts that always drive you to make the same decisions. It's these familiar decisions that always lead to the same actions. It's these familiar actions that always result in the same outcomes. It's these same outcomes that constantly result in the same emotions. It's these familiar emotions that give you those familiar feelings. These feelings that always lead to the same thoughts, thereby completing the cycle. If you can recognize this, you will be empowered to change 
your thinking.